Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. On this week's podcast, our senior reporter, Luke Haynes, is speaking to Dr. Fazana Hussein. Dr. Hussein is a GP in Newham in East London and recently announced she is stepping down from her role as a clinical director of a local primary care network at the end of March. She's someone who's been a big advocate for PCNs since they were first introduced in 2019. But issues such as top-down management, endless meetings and restrictive recruitment rules have led her to resign. Today, she talks to Luke in more depth about the reasons behind her decision, what she believes the problems facing PCNs are and what needs to happen to bring about real change in general practice. Before I hand over to Luke, just a quick message. If you're enjoying our podcast, please do think about rating us. And don't forget, you can subscribe to Talking General Practice from wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Fazana Hussain. Welcome to the Talking General Practice podcast. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast, Luke. As, as we all know, primary care networks or PCNs, they were established in 2019 and they're a key part of the government's plans to improve population health, to also encourage providers to work more closely together um, and also to employ an additional 26,000 staff into primary care via general practice. Now, Fazana, you were one of the GPs who, who has been involved from PCN sort of since, since day one. But could you tell us a little bit about the network you were leading up until recently? Um, so sort of how many practices it had within it and um, and what the population sort of looked like? Sure. So um, I was a clinical director for Newham Central One PCN and we were, uh, we're one of nine PCNs in Newham. And we were up until recently, there's been a merger, but the largest PCN uh, and we were made up of 67,000 uh, residents and seven practices. So on the larger side, uh, so Newham as a whole, we have 74% uh, BAME. Uh, we were actually, up until the Olympics came in 2012, we were uh, out of the 23 uh, boroughs in, in London, we were the second most deprived. Then we moved up now, we're sort of much higher up, but that's because of the pocket of, if you like, luxury of where sort of I live in Stratford. But my PCN covers um, central Newham, hence the name. Um, even within the PCN, Luke, uh, where my practices were a little bit younger, but uh, one of the other practices, actually, we, we as a network look after three care homes. Uh, so our older population are uh, more Caucasian and, uh, you know, it would be wrong to say we don't have um, sickness. One of the things we see in Newham is that, uh, like uh, uh, areas of a lot of health inequality, that um, there's more sickness at a younger age. Um, quite um, high in financial deprivation, very rich culturally diverse and and a mix even within the PCN of young people uh, who are suffering from a lot of maybe mental health issues to our older frailer patients particularly as we have three uh, care homes. So transporting you back a few years so it's sort of 2019 again and PCNs are off the mark you're recruiting pharmacists and link workers and COVID isn't a thing yet what a world that was um how was the first year going sort of how were the initial months of, of the PCN once you started it was very exciting, Luke. I mean, I got interested in PCNs because I had been following the work uh, prior to PCNs of the NAPC, the National Association of Primary Care, and uh, I actually was on their council and on their exec board. And they had uh, pioneered what was a primary care home, uh, which sort of PCNs were largely modelled on. And the first year was an exciting time. 
we actually decided to become a slightly larger PCM because the practices knew each other from our commissioning cluster days, from the CCG commissioning cluster days. So we had been meeting for sort of, uh, you know, six, seven years prior to that when CCGs, the inception of CCGs in 2013, and we got on well and we wanted to work together. And, uh, you know, we, we had nothing. I, I had no admin support, no PCM manager. I used to go to face-to-face -face meetings pre-COVID, um, you know, at one of our host practices, taking my paper register with me, uh, writing up the minutes myself. Uh, our first link worker, we, we got through a charity organization that, you know, I, I had worked with, I knew. Um, really exciting times. And uh, it had such a lot of energy behind it, such a lot of hope. And the practices, again, were, you know, we were doing this on top of our day jobs, if you like, in practice. But we were all still motivated to do this, to do this extra work, to uh, improve health for our communities. So I look upon it really fondly. I mean, I had a blast. I really did. Within those sort of first initial months, obviously, you're very much getting feet under the table and, and working, um, sort of warming up to, to the role. But what had you sort of managed to achieve in this in this time? What were the sort of early wins? At that point, uh, Luke, um, if we can remember pre-COVID, I mean, the clinical director wasn't, um, the, the sessions weren't, it wasn't a whole time equivalent post. Uh, and just out of um, sheer motivation and encouragement, we were working sort of all, all odd hours because we were just loving it. You know, I, I met up with our local hospital, you know, Newham University Hospital, met up with um, uh, the medical director there, uh, met up with our public health, new director, director who'd just come into post. Um, all those things that, um, you know, with our external partners, it just rang people up and said, can I meet you? Um, and, you know, they were more than happy to meet. Um, and I think looking back over the three years, I think all that great groundwork, I didn't see the progress then after that in, in the three years, because it was a very good start, I think. So as the pandemic hits in March 2020, GP teams, are, they're asked to do more remote consultations. You're also asked to sort of set up hot and cold sites to treat those with and obviously without the virus. And I just wanted to know how, how sort of the PCN coped with these challenges and whether there were benefits of working as a group of practices. Yeah, I mean, it's a great chance to reflect, isn't it? When I look back, I think, oh my gosh, how did we do that? If, if you had asked me, would you be able to, you know, as a clinical director, to help set up, you know, vaccines that, that you and your community pharmacy colleagues together, you provided 71% of the population's COVID vaccine, learnt about a new disease, protected your own staff and your patients, set up hot and cold sites, worked with the Federation. I would say you must be off your rocker, you know, we've got enough to do. But actually all that happened. And then there was also thinking about the practice resilience. So when when the uh, first lockdown happened, we were having weekly meetings as a PCN of actually what would happen if one of our practice sites had to close. Because if we recall back then, we didn't quite know how dangerous COVID was. And, and at the time we were thinking that if there was a COVID positive patient on one site, we might need to close the site. Uh, so how would we divert other patients? So we made up contingency plans between us because um, we're a big PCN 
PCN, we had buddy practices, um, you know, buddying with each other. And one was a cluster of three, so two, two and three, um, our staffing, um, all of that happened. And there was such a lot of goodwill and people were doing this in their evenings, you know, after a full day's work, such a lot of innovation was done. And um, it was very exciting times. And it was really nice look to be able to try an idea and implement it without any red tape or anybody saying no, you can't. Um, so that was very freeing. And a lot of innovation happened in a very short time. So another, I guess, benefit, many people have said of, of networks during COVID has been the um, vaccination campaign. I just wanted to ask if if that was something that you felt PCNs really helped with in terms of sort of either helping to pull staff or or just to to make the the challenge of delivering these millions and millions of jabs a bit more bearable. Absolutely. Personally, I think without PCNs, the vaccines would not have been delivered, uh, partly because of governance. Obviously, we were not able to with the rules around the vaccine dispersal, we wouldn't have been able to get them at practice level. But also because it was it is such a huge job to have been part of being the you know 71 percent of all vaccines given were given by primary care i mean our community pharmacist colleagues included in that big thank you to them but we for example very early decided to deploy all our arss staff so our link workers were doing the the ringing our pharmacists were helping uh, actually give the vaccinations and let's not forget that actually it isn't just about giving the vaccination, it's about helping um, people to understand the need for that vaccination. So that was a huge job in an area like Newham, where we know that people who are from more financially deprived areas and people from certain BAME minorities are more reluctant to take the vaccine. I think it's it's fairly well known now that obviously you've sort of stepped aside from your clinical director role, which surprised quite a few people, including myself, just given how dedicated you sort of were to that role and the initial sort of excitement about PCNs and, and that care model. I know we sort of spoke last week about a, f- a couple of the reasons, but I just wanted to ask you if you could sort of run us through your main concerns or maybe the main reasons which led you to to this decision. Sure. So I actually uh, leave on the uh, on the 31st of March. So I've got like a few little weeks, but I'm fortunate that I've had a co-CD for over a year. So he'll be taking over at CD. I've got a PCN manager. So I think there's three different levels. I mean, my, my reason for leaving hasn't been the expanding workload, which I know a lot of CDs have talked about. I actually think it was busier um, at the beginning to set up a PCN. Um, so for me, it isn't um, expanding workload. Uh, I think it's three things. I think one is a, a very personal to my PCN issue. Um, my PCN is now set up after three years, and I think we do need a slightly more distributive leadership. And I am personally somebody who likes to set things up and be front and centre. And I think PCNs are now in their next phase after three years. So I think it does require a more distributive, uh, you know, every practice involved. And I think that's um, that's important because I don't want to be a, a blocker by being um, a, le- a leader can sometimes be a blocker as well. Um, 
A very important reason for me, I remain a huge advocate of PCNs. I've had a load of people, uh, funnily on Twitter, saying, oh, Fazan has seen the light now. Um, I don't feel I've seen the light. I, I don't think that it's a good idea to um, throw a tantrum and say, let's withdraw from the PCN DES, which has been suggested by a lot of organisations. I think that would be a backward move. I think we've still got two years to turn things around, but I think the aim of the PCN which I was quite clear about in the long-term plan, which was to, for general practice, a, a cluster of general practices to work together with our communities, our hospitals, our voluntary care organisations, our mental health trusts, our community trusts, to improve the health of our communities. I think we're kind of losing the aim of that because before now it was clear that primary care networks were the foundations of integrated care systems. Now that integrated care systems are becoming statutory bodies in July, it doesn't feel to me, and this is just my local experience in Newham in East London, it doesn't feel like a two-way dialogue. It does feel like we have a huge organisation coming called an integrated care system. And it feels sometimes to me like the aim is to keep people out of hospital and it is about what the hospital need. And that is not my primary aim. If we keep people out of hospital, that's great. But actually, if we make sure our communities are healthy, then a lot of them won't be anywhere near a hospital in the first place. So I think we are not clear of what the aims are of the PCN. We don't seem to be living out what the aspiration was in the long term plan. And I, I think that uh, we are in danger of PCNs becoming a very small voice in a very big organisation. So, so my reasoning, it wasn't a quick decision. It was that I felt that I was not able to influence to be able to improve the health of the community of Newham, which I wanted to in a meaningful way, which is why I took up the CD post and role. And I know during our sort of original conversation the other week, another reason sort of why you said you'd, you'd step or about to step down was sort of time spent with patients. Just wondered if you could talk us through that again. Sure. I think that, um, you know, we mentioned earlier that although a lot of the DESAs and IIF indicators had been paused for COVID, many of them are coming back after April. I personally think it needs a rethink because actually the world is very different post-COVID, not just that we have a much more tired workforce to begin with and a lot of the workforce has left. Um, that is a reality. But when we're thinking about the patients we serve, so for example, I have in 21 years as a GP never seen so much late cancer presentation lots of reasons for that I mean people sort of getting the meta during lockdown the NHS is overburdened or for themselves being worried about coming out in lockdown and getting infected but there is a lot of health need out there so we're seeing late cancer presentations I've had just this week Luke three people um, in a week admitted to hospital with falls some of whom are quite young I mean they're only 60 and it's making me think that actually because of lockdown a lot of people haven't moved and their mobility has decreased. So there's a lot of health need that is new post-COVID. And I haven't even talked about long COVID, which is a whole condition we're just learning about. So I think that we do need to think about 
providing care for these new things that we're seeing that we weren't seeing before. And I, I think that just trying to pick up where we left off two years ago and saying, right, everybody's had a pause because we've been busy delivering COVID vaccine and let's just pick up the specs and the IIF is um ignoring the fact that there has been a pandemic and there are there are lots of things that have come out of that pandemic. When you're around those tables, obviously you've mentioned um, there about new new sort of concerns for GPs and, and their teams. When you sort of bring these concerns to the table, are they were they sort of listened to? I, I I didn't feel so. I think one was, um, you know, the multitude of duplication of meetings. So there's a uh, once a month um, we have a, G, a very active GP federation, uh, and so the clinical directors go to a once a month meeting there. Then there's a once a month CCG transformation meeting. Then there are LMC meetings, and the commonality between those three is that actually it's a lot of duplication of information. So we wonder why we go to three separate meetings. Um, but I have increasingly felt that actually the people who have the voice of the acute trust and that most of the emphasis is on how can we keep people out of hospital. So other concerns in the community and things I would say probably aren't as listened to. And I do feel that that is a philosophically I feel that's a backward move because actually if we start doing preventative health care so if I can do something with my false patients today whether that be using the occupational therapist ARSS role and helping them proactively go to see people in their houses to see if they're walking to see if they're balancing so then maybe then actually those are the falls that might be prevented in a couple of years but what we tend to do is look at look at it retrospectively and think oh we've had so many people in hospital can we keep these people out and I think we're focusing on the wrong cohort so I think we need a lot more emphasis on our community-based preventative care which is I think what the idea of a PCN was about and I'm not sure how we lost that over the three years. I know last week GPC chair Dr Farah Jamil she she sort of came out and said that the investment and impact funds or the IIF, um, was a staggering way to commission care. I understand the IIF was a bit of a bugbear of yours too. So I don't disagree with the concept of IIF. I don't believe that everything should be in core contract because I think IIF could be a very good enabler for PCNs to work together. My issue with the current IIF is that there's nothing I think that's transformational about it. So if we look at, for example, let's hit our flu targets, that was always something that was practice-based anyway. Practices have been uh, delivering flu vaccination ever since I became a GP 21 years ago. So I wasn't clear of why that is in the IAF because that is something that can stay in a practice contract. Uh, I do think that IIF would be very useful for something like um, I mean, I'm doing a project that is an optional project. It's a, uh, a voluntary project. I'm, I'm part of a national health inequalities program called the Complete Care Communities. And we've decided to focus on identifying the factors that might lead our young people into knife crime. Uh, so it sounds way out there. It's not a medical condition. It's not like diabetes, but actually that's what's killing many of our young people. So I think something like that in an IIF, which a practice on its own 
couldn't deliver a because we don't have the scale and b because it needs a, a network size to work with our schools as we are doing to work with our council as we are doing I'd like to see more of that and more local flexibility in there, because while I might be interested in knife crime, perhaps if you're in Dorset, I'm not sure that might not be what you need. Your population might need something else if you've got a rural elderly population. So I don't disagree with the IF concept. I think we're measuring the wrong things and I think we're doing a lot of practice duplication. And I think why not keep that at practice level? Because why, why are we trying to fix something that isn't broken? How rewarding do you find that sort of work? Because obviously that's sort of a bit off-piste and and something that is truly, um, well, maybe not truly new, unique just to Newham, but it's something that you know is is a problem in your area and that something that your team can can help with. So that's been, for me, in the last year, the most exciting thing. We're, we're one year in and we're hoping to continue this. Um, and one of the reasons it's been so pleasurable is because it's been it's come from a direct need. I mean, my own practice, sadly, only 5,000 patients. We've had three teenagers die over the last 10 years, which is quite a lot um, and, um, you know, a huge direct need. Um, it's been absolutely brilliant to see, you know, schools coming forward, public health coming forward. It was truly collaborative. We needed to ask them once. And, you know, schools were at our meetings. Young people were at our meetings. It was absolutely what I wanted to achieve uh, when the PCNs were set up. And it, it was really nice to be able to do that as a clinical director without having quite a lot of unnecessary stuff thrown at me and what i mean by that is again the slight bureaucracy so we at the moment i feel not only are we unclear about the purpose of a pcn we're also unclear about the role of the clinical director so it seems to go all the way from you as clinical director are accountable for all the poorly performing practices in your batch um, and you need to sort them out well I don't think that's my job, actually. I think sharing and learning and promoting positive practice is really good. But we have CQC as regulators for that. I don't think that's my job. Um, so it goes all the way from an accountable sort of almost a, a, a stick holding a stick job to, um, oh, we've got this uh, we've got this problem in diabetes. Can you just sort it out? Um, so I'm not sure that we're clear about the role of the clinical director, and it does seem to be ever expanding and the knife crime project is very refreshing because i can build it as i want it to uh, without having to go through loads of red tape and i think that's why we're making so much progress with it yeah something that's been said to me just in in terms of the clinical director role obviously the workload is is quite a lot but also i think it's just the the breadth of um of activities that uh, people like yourself are being asked to perform in in the role we sort of i guess have to talk about the recruitment scheme we touched on it a little bit earlier but um i just wanted to get your thoughts on that and sort of how that is working yeah so i think many many areas have found it difficult to spend all the ars's funding uh, which again shows that although yes the government you know and single has uh, invested lots in the rss roles you know millions of pounds that it isn't all about money which is often something that general practice is accused of oh it's all about money but actually those roles are in effect free yet they haven't all been been filled 
important. So we need to ask ourselves why. Um, so I think for various reasons, as I've mentioned, for um, you know the fact that there's no training or supervision, money that if you're in an area like London, that actually there are other costs to think about, like London waiting, uh, and also that you know there is a workforce shortage. Um, so I think this underspend. I think there should be um, some flexibility over that in PCNs then being able to use that and, and given, giving them that money or even practices actually because at the moment like we can't use that to recruit extra locum sessions of GPs or nurses which would still be very useful for workforce but I think it's very rigid. I know you sort of haven't completely given up on PCNs I think it's fair to say that you still believe in the model but I think the key question here would be how how do you think it should be sort of shaken up to to ensure that it is delivering on what um what was promised so i think number one i think we need to recognize the value of pcns uh and i mean truly recognize that uh, a word i hear from ics is we're here to support pcns we're here to support pcns i think uh i would you know turn that on its head and say actually pcns are here to support ics's we do two different jobs we need mutual support it sometimes feels like a parent-child relationship because the ICS is a bigger organization and I think it's important that we again all try and play nicely together I know that's not easy um, but it isn't all about one provider it can't always be about the acute trust or the community trust or whatever trust or in fact about primary care we do all truly need to work together as equal partners if our shared purpose is to improve health for our communities so I think that needs a, a, a and I'm not saying this is easy but I think we really need to focus on that rather than just listen to the larger provider organizations. Uh, I think ICSs do need to think about the fact that within their large footprint that a couple of areas might be different. So we cover seven boroughs. One borough is very Caucasian and very well-to-do and very elderly. Um, uh, you know, Havering has a very different look, one area of the NEL ICS than, than Newham does. You know, we're completely two different worlds. So being able to allow for the flexibility because they're two completely different populations. Um, and I, I'm all for, with, you know, it's the taxpayers' money. We do need to have something like an IIF or a DES. We do need to be clear about what we are spending public money on. But I think to uh, not go too one way and have uh, a one national menu top down, but give PCNs some flexibility. Um, a bit like my knife prime project, we still have metrics. There are still things that we will need to show for success. Uh, but we are not a slave to the metrics where we're improving health and we are learning as we go along and thinking about what works well and what doesn't. Um, and I think that's a far more nurturing way to do things. It's a far more positive way to do things as well. Yeah. And for the clinical director role, how do we sort of get the best out of clinicians who are who are in that role? What either supports do they need or what almost needs to be taken away to make sure that they can focus on what they're best at, I suppose? So so three things I've learned for myself over the three years is um 
say no if you don't know what the purpose of the meeting is and what your contribution is in that meeting. If it's a meeting for information giving, you know, most GP clinical directors and nurse and pharmacy clinical directors are, are very intelligent people. We can read information on an email, so we might save ourselves. So if it is just pure one-way information giving, then you don't need to go to a meeting for that. Um, I would also say CDs, you know, I'm sure some areas are doing this, but work together a lot more. So there, there's, um, you're not duplicating, maybe one CD can represent a few and go to a meeting. Um, and, and remember that the meeting isn't the work, the meeting is there to generate work, because sometimes it's felt like um, the, the expectation is the CDs go to a meeting, and then that's that done. But actually, we are providers of care. Most GP practices or GP practices know how to provide care, we do it all the time. So the meeting is not the work. Um, and I think the only other thing I would say to my previous CD self, which I think I got better as I went along is, if you need to say no to protect your PCN, just do it. Because there are a lot of asks of a PCN. It, it does sometimes feel like because there's no other cupboard, somebody's just thrown an extra dirty mop in your cupboard and said, can your PCN deliver this? And it's important for CDs to be able to stand up and say, no, no, we can't actually. And then it's like, oh, can't you? And it's like, no, because otherwise we won't be able to deliver the three, four other things. We want to do a few things well, rather than lots of things badly. So I think those are probably the tips I would give to any CD coming in. Think about the value of the meetings you're going to. Do feel brave enough to say no if you feel that your PCN is being asked to do uh, too much without any resource or any reason particularly. And um, we need to be equal partners in our ICS. Uh, size shouldn't matter. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much to Dr. Vasana Hussein for taking the time to talk to Luke. Luke and I will be back next week with our news editor, Nick Bostock, when we'll be discussing the new GP contract which was announced this week and looking at what it all means for general practice. Please do join us then. The podcast is out first thing every Friday. In the meantime, you can keep up with all the latest news in primary care, access clinical education and a whole range of articles on careers and other professional issues on our website at gponline.com. Listener.